let's stand together. Uh, as Pastor Mandy said, we are looking at our first installment of the book of 1 John. And this is what's going to happen. Uh, we are going to look at six installments uh, before we get to Christmas. And by the way, do you know what today is? October 20. Two months from today, ladies and gentlemen, two months from today. So we're going to stop. Yeah, that was, that's plaza, all right? Uh, we're going to stop at, uh, at the end of November, and then we're going to look in Matthew's gospel at the Christmas store. We're going to look through you, focus on Matthew, and then we'll come back and finish up First John uh, in January. Uh, so we are looking this morning at First John chapter 1, just the first four verses, and this is what it says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy might, may be complete. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for the privilege of being your sons and daughters, and for the way in which that you have shown your love to us in such a extravagant, generous, and glorious way in, through, and as Jesus Christ, and for the work and the ministry of the Spirit that takes everything you've done in Jesus and makes it available, possible, and applicable in our lives. And so we ask now that the same Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to understand. And Lord, as we leave this place, as we turn off our device at the end of this service, Lord, that we would live out tangibly, meaningfully, physically, what it means to be Christ followers in our relationships, at home, at school, at work, and in the places where we buy and receive our services and where we recreate, and wherever it is that we build relationships. We love you, we praise you, and thank you. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Allow me to introduce you to 1 John. The text that we just read sort of comprises, if you will, a condensed and concise introduction. Now, it is unusual that in the book of 1 John, it does not contain any personal greeting. This is unusual because if you remember when we talked about the seven churches in Revelation, in first century letters, they did the complete opposite of what we do. The, the, uh, the sender or the writer of the letter put their signature at the front of the letter, not at the back or the end. We see that in Paul and Peter. We see that in Jude. The only two places in the New Testament where the author's signature is not at the beginning of the document is in the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and here in 1 John. <clears throat> now, 1 John is a letter that was written 
as by Jesus' last living disciple. John wrote it around the end, toward the end of the first century, which is 70 to 90 AD. And he wrote it to a group of believers, we think, maybe in the city of Ephesus. Now, it's been about 50 years since Jesus ascended into heaven. About 50 years. And John is writing in a very dangerous and precarious time for the early Christians and for the early church. The first generation of Christians that actually literally met Jesus physically, that heard him and and saw him and touched him, they have all but died. And John, matter of fact, they have all died, and John is the only one left. And he is writing to people who never physically met Jesus literally, but heard about Jesus from people who did, like John, our author, this morning. And as time has gone on over these 50 years, a number of questions have come up. Doubts have crept in. Did this really happen? Is this really true? To add to that, not only is it a dangerous time, but we understand that as time has gone on since Jesus' ascension, that people have begun to mess with the message. Some people are questioning the humanity of Jesus, others are questioning the divinity of Jesus, whether or not he was the Son of God. So that brings us to this. Now, it might be helpful for us as we move forward in 1 John to take these notes and sort of stick them in our pocket or our purse or our Bible if we use a Bible or whatever, or have access to them because it'll help us as we move forward. There were two groups of people who were raising questions. The first were the Docetists. Now, the Docetists were people who actually said that Jesus was not really human. They they said that Jesus only appeared to be human. It only looked like Jesus had a physical body, and so therefore, logically, it only seemed that Jesus died. The second group of people that we need to be aware of is the group called the Gnostics. Now, the Gnostics, what they taught and believed is a little bit more complicated. Gnosticism claimed that they had a special key to spiritual life, that they had this secret knowledge, and in order to be a true Christian, you had to have this secret knowledge. But here's the problem. The secret was so secret that nobody knew what it was. The other thing that the Gnostics taught is this. They taught and believed that anything physical, material, tangible, was bad or evil. And because of that, they believed that the human body was bad and evil. And if the human body is bad and evil, then it stands to reason that Jesus could not have had a physical body Because the physical body is bad and evil. 
And so too, this is an attack on Jesus' humanity. The 105 verses that make up 1 John, in contrariness to what the Gnostics' secret knowledge was, is an uncomplicated, simple, straightforward, clear, down-to-earth, yet powerful and important message about love and about God. Now, Eugene Peterson said this. He said, the two most difficult things to get straight in life are love and God. More often than not, The mess people make of their lives can be traced to failure or stupidity or meanness in one or both of these areas. The two subjects are intricately related. He says, if we want to deal with God the right way, then we have to learn to love the right way. And if we want to love the right way, then we have to deal with God the right way. Love, God and love can't be separated. So the message of 1 John is as not lost any of its influence or its relevance or its impact in our time. So John begins by rooting them then and us today in the historical reliability of Jesus Christ as the central truth of the Christian faith. I want you to imagine with me just for a moment this morning what it would be like if we met God. How would we behave How would you behave? How would I behave? Uh, Would I be shy or would I be bold? What would you say to him? What questions would you ask God? If you could actually meet God. Well, John did meet God. Face to face. And Christianity is anchored in the objective historical truth of Jesus according to the witness that the apostles bore to it. Now the first thing John wants to tell us is that Jesus Christ really did live and that he existed. And the opening two verses of our text plunge us into the heart of the Christian message. There are four short opening statements. The first is this. He says, that which was from the beginning. Now, it's interesting because we do not know what John means by the beginning. There are differing, differing opinions of what people believe it might be. Is he referring to the beginning as from all of eternity? 
Is he talking about the beginning of creation? Is he talking about the beginning of the incarnation where God becomes human flesh in Jesus Christ that we're going to look at in a couple of, in a month actually from Matthew's Gospels chapter, chapters 1 and 2? Is it the beginning of Jesus' ministry or is it the beginning of the church? We don't know. And the ambiguity and the uncertainty there is sort of deliberate and intentional because all of those things that I just listed are all true. These are all beginnings that Jesus was present at. But I think most likely the beginning that John is referring to is when and where he first met Jesus. And John makes three more statements about his interaction and his experience with Jesus. <clears throat> First of all, John says that Jesus was verbal. He says, we have heard. And not just John heard. Jesus' family heard him. Other followers heard him. Other disciples and apostles heard him. And any and all who interacted with Jesus while he lived in his life in Palestine heard him. John is saying, we heard him teach and speak. We heard him say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We heard him when he declared, I and the Father are one. We heard him the day that he calmed the sea, peace be still. We heard him raise the dead. We heard him bless the children. And then John says, we have seen with our eyes which we looked upon, that Jesus was visible. We saw him, we saw him heal the sick. We saw him multiply the loaves and the fishes. We saw him transfigured. We saw him crucified. We saw him resurrected. We saw him ascend into heaven. And then he says, and have touched him with our hands. That Jesus Christ was a physical human being. He says that we even touched him. Matter of fact, he says, I lean back against him in the upper room on the night of the Last Supper. But John says, not only did we touch him, but he touched us. Literally and figuratively. Spiritually. He changed our lives. Now, you okay? Can I give you a quick Greek grammar point? A little grammar? Okay, good. Won't be long. It's this. Now, John is saying this. He's saying we saw Jesus. We heard Jesus. We touched Jesus. Now, that would be, of course, simple past tense. He is reporting on something that happened, a past action. We have seen it. We saw it. But the Greek here uses what we refer to as the present tense. 
And the present tense describes past action that is continuing in the present. A past action with continuing results. And what John is reporting is not just something that happened, but he is saying it also continues to have an effect upon my life up to the time of this writing. John says we did not just see Jesus and hear Jesus and touch Jesus, but we continue to experience Jesus and the experience of our seeing, hearing, and touching and Jesus' touching us continues to transform and mold and shape our lives then and now. That's what he's trying to say. It's the same idea in Ephesians. Some of you who have... Um, know the biblical text will know that Ephesians says, uh, be not drunk with wine where isn't excess, but be filled with the Spirit, right? The, it's present tense, or rather it's perfect tense. It means keep on being filled. Keep on being filled. You know why? Because a bunch of us leak. But that's for free as we're going along. And then John adds this. He says, this, Jesus, is the word of life. Can I say something to you? The hope of the church is not the church. And the hope of the world is not the church. And the hope of Sudbury is not Glad Tidings Church. And the hope of the world is not Christians. It is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the hope of the church and of us as Christians and of Sudbury and of the world. And so this is what John is saying. And then there's this. Now, if something important and meaningful and life transforming takes place in our lives, not only do we want to share it, we have to share it, right? How many of you have heard the story of the pastor who woke up on a beautiful summer Sunday, sunny morning, and decided that he wanted to go golfing rather than go to church. Well, this is how the story goes. He wakes up on this beautiful, sunny, summer, Sunday morning, and he doesn't want to go to church. He wants to go golf, and so he calls in and fakes sick. Now, you do not want this guy as your pastor, okay? And you don't have to worry about it because I hate golf. <laughs> He gets one of the other pastors to fill in for him, and he drives 50 kilometers down the road so that he never runs into anybody from the church. Well, he gets up at the first tee, and he just tees off, and he hits the ball, and it heads straight for the pin. It drops in front of the pin. It rolls up and drops into the hole. It is a 420-yard hole in one. Well, then the pastor plays what is the best golf game of his life. He is scoring eagles and birdies and hole-in-one. I mean, everything is working. And finally, at the end of the 18th hole, he has actually beaten and created, beaten the old record and created a new course record. Now, Peter is watching from heaven, St. Peter. And he turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, what in the world? 
Are you going to let him get away with this? And Jesus smiles and says, who's he going to tell? I was open for more, but hey, I'll take what I get. Now, John wants to tell us about the greatest thing that has happened to him and in his life. And so he introduces us to some words and truths that are very common in the Christian faith. He talks about fellowship. He talks about shared fellowship. Now, for those of us that are old timers and been around Christianity for a while, you know that the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. That's where it comes from. Now, fellowship and koinonia has two dimensions to it. The first is a horizontal dimension. So that you may have fellowship with us, John says. Sometimes when we gather together socially, we call it fellowship. It usually involves food. Well, it always involves food and conversation and some fun. Now, fellowship in our text that is described there is much more than a social activity. It's more than just enjoying food and chatting together and playing some games. Fellowship that is talked about in this text is not just an activity, but it is a relationship that is based and rooted in a common purpose person, Jesus Christ. Fellowship means that you and I, that we have someone in common. And then the words you too suggest this, that although we did not have the privilege of having a literal encounter with Jesus Christ physically, the way that John did, yet they then and we today have the same shared fellowship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said that Christian brotherhood or sisterhood is not an ideal that we must realize, create, or bring about but rather it is rather a reality created by God in which we may participate. Fellowship is a relationship, not just an activity. And then our fellowship is also a partnership in a common or shared purpose, and that is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, put your seatbelt on and buckle up. Newsflash. Our faith is not just about us. My faith is not just about me. Your faith is not just about you. We have a job to do. We have an action that is required of us, and we are to participate in it. First, in that we are to proclaim, or we are to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. In other words, you got to tell somebody. I mean, the second one is this. 
Not only do we proclaim verbally the good news of Jesus Christ, but we must demonstrate the love of Jesus physically, tangibly, and meaningful. That's why we do all this missional stuff. Because sometimes you got to do the second one in order to be heard for the first one. But let me tell you this very clearly. Nobody is ever going to get saved and know Jesus and have a relationship with him just because we put together a backpack. We got to tell somebody. We got to share how you and I met Jesus, how Jesus has transformed our lives. We just got to tell our story. And I want you to know that I know a bunch of you. I know almost all of you. But more importantly, I know me, and I got a story because I am a trophy of grace. Ask my mother. No, don't ask my mother. And in this purpose, we share a partnership. Fellowship describes us as believers as a community, but also fellowship describes us as believers as having a common purpose. Now, the horizontal dimension of fellowship is first meant is the first one mentioned in our text. But the second one is more important. I can say it again. Never mind. The reason why it's more important is for this reason. If we don't have the second one, the first one is null and void. And indeed, our fellowship, now get this, listen. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Did you get that? Our fellowship is with the Father and with Jesus Christ, His Son. Stop for a moment. And think of the gravity and the wonder of that statement. That you and I are the sons and daughters of God. Did you hear it? You are a son or daughter of God. Does that not blow us away? I mean, does that not amaze us? Or have we become so familiar with it that we have begun to take it for granted? I'm going to give us a couple of verses this morning and from the New Testament that speaks about our fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The first one is this. From 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what it says. His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him, listen, who called us by to His own glory and excellence. You've been called, we've been called to God's glory and excellence, but it doesn't stop there. By which He has granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature. You and I are partakers in the divine nature. Do we know what that means? I want it to just settle there. 
and bring you to the next one. Ephesians chapter 2 is one of the greatest passage in the Bible. In the first, um, in the first three verses, it, uh, uh, Paul talks about how we are such sinners. And then in verse 4 is the great reversal, the great exchange. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love from which he, he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace of you have been saved, and here it is, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you know what that means? That you and I, that we have been raised up with Jesus, that right at this moment that you and I are sitting in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Now there is enough reflective value in those two texts alone to keep us pondering for a long time. But I'm going to let them sit there today. And I want to move on to the shared goal of our text, joy. We are writing these things so that our joy, the pronoun our joy, because our fellowship is shared, so is our joy. Now, the joy that's being talked about there, of course, is John's and whoever is in John's posse that is there when he's writing this, but he's also talking to you and me. It's our joy, our joy, yours and mine, along with John's. Now, here's something that we can use, joy, and we can use it now, we have had so much loss and grief at Glad Tidings Church in the last eight months or in the year 2020 than I think any church can stand. And if we ever need a joy, we need it now. Here are some of the people who are grieving in our congregation. The Siddons, the Ziliacs, the Albans, the Wells, the Krauses, the Wilsons, the Kadimas, the Moongas, the Dugdales, Christine Newberry, Shirley Hancock, the Quinns, the Thompsons, the Stevens, the Belvilles, the Chiatows, and now Bob White. This is something we can use. Joy. And the season that we're in called COVID-19, if there ever is a need for joy, we need it now. Did you know that joy is mentioned 140 times in the New and Old Testament? And because of it, it, is the, it, it actually prompts the most frequent commandment in the Bible. Rejoice. Rejoice. But let me tell you what this joy is not. Okay, it is not a joy that we can self-generate in and of ourselves. 
There is no such thing here in our text as just pull up your socks or get over it, whatever it is. I was driving down a street yesterday and somebody had written on a wall, be happy. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's okay for you to say that. To say to somebody, just get over it, or just pull your socks up, or just move on, that's just plain frustrating, and it's unfair. And this is not the joy that our text is talking about. What it is, is joy that is rooted in the triune nature of our God. And what I mean by that is this, and this is very important, very important, wow. God the Father is the source of our joy. The psalmist said this, then I will go to the altar of God to my exceeding joy. The Son is the means of joy. Jesus said in John 15, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The Holy Spirit is the supplier, the facilitator, the agent of that joy. Paul says in Romans chapter 15, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The joy that is being talked about in our text is a communicable, transmittable, receivable attribute of God. That's why we can say with Nehemiah, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we can say with James, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kind. Why? Because it is rooted in the Trinitarian nature of our God and it is not rooted in us. The definitive statement on joy, in my opinion, is 1 Peter 1.8, where it says, though you have seen, not seen him, you love him, and though you do not now see him, a reflection of John, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. It's filled with glory. It's filled with God's glory. And it is inexpressible in that it is indescribable and undefinable and overwhelming and deep. Now, we should not confuse the joy in our text that is inexpressible and filled with glory with happiness. Happiness depends on outward circumstances. But joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory is a deep, abiding, inner thankfulness and gratitude to God which is not interrupted when undesirable life circumstances intrude. It is intended to help us rise above the raging battles of our life, to think beyond our pain, to live unfettered to the immediate and look with hope to the future. Now, I want to say this. One of the things that makes this joy inexpressible is the way in which you and I can experience it and receive it from God. And at the same time, it does not eliminate, discredit, underestimate, or ignore our human emotions of loss, loneliness, grief, tears, etc. 
It is an inexpressible joy that is heaven sent and Holy Spirit produced and it coincides and functions together with human emotion. Even in the darkest times, even in the greatest sorrow, even in grief and loss, in on unprecedented times, isn't that the word everybody uses for COVID-19? In uncertainty, in frustrating times, and disillusionment. Inexpressible joy and full of glory. But here's our question. We can't end without this. How do we get it? How do we get this heaven-sent, Holy Spirit-produced joy? This joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. How do we get it? Can I tell you that it is simple as this? Ask for it. I want you to stand all over the room if you're watching online if you want to stand but here's what I want you to do I listed a host of people who are in our congregation who are grieving and experiencing loss but in the room and watching online what is stealing our joy What is going on in your life that is getting in the way of joy? Here's what I want you to do. You already know what you already know what it is. You know what it is in your life as I know what it is in my life. And maybe some of us today, you know, life couldn't be better. And you're filled with joy, and that's fantastic. And that's good. But there are many who are not experiencing joy. So what I want you to do is close your eyes now for a moment. And I want you to focus on, for a second, on what it is that you are grieving, that you are worried about, that you are praying for, that you are struggling with. And I want you to lay it at the feet of Jesus right now. Now, he already knows, he already knows what we're going through. He walks with us, he already knows that. But it's good for us to tell him. So now I want you to tell Jesus what it is. And just lay it at his feet. Just do it. Have you named it? Have you identified it? Have you labeled it? Lay it at his feet. Now, ask him to fill you with his joy. Father, I thank you that you're a God who loves and cares for us. That you're a God who is gracious and generous. And Father, today your word says that if we lack anything, that we're to ask of you. And so, Father, today there are many people here in the room and online that are laying stuff at your feet. And they may take it home with them today, but that's okay because your inexpressible joy that is filled with glory, it can reside alongside our human emotions because you're bigger 
than that. But as we ask for your joy, how many times, Lord, in the midst of conflict and difficulty and uncertainty, I've said to you, Lord, I need your peace. And I felt it. I felt the calm. And so there are those of us today that are asking for joy. And Lord knows this entire congregation and this entire city and this entire province and nation and world needs a good dose of joy in COVID-19. Joy. And I thank you, Father, that you are not a stick and carrot God. That, Father, you are the source of joy. Jesus Christ is the means and the Holy Spirit is the agent. He is the facilitator of it. Lord, may your Holy Spirit just fill us with joy this day, this week, this hour, this month, this year. In the name of Jesus. One last thing before we're done. You only got to ask. It's as simple as that. There's nothing to jump through. There's no secret knowledge. There's no hoops. There's no spiritual gymnastics. Just ask. Here's how I know. Listen to what the text says here. Our God is not a stick and carrot God. He doesn't offer something and then we, when we get up close to it, he pulls back. That's not God of the Bible. That's some manufactured idea of God. Listen to what it says. Jesus is speaking. He says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be open. And then he makes this incredible illustration. What father among you, if, your, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Scorpion, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And then if that's not enough, Paul says in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Joy. Joy, joy, joy. We need it, don't we? Now, we got to go because I'm way over time and this broadcast is going to end in five minutes. So at home, here in the room, what do we do? When we praise our God, let's end this way. <laughs> Hallelujah. To our God, we lift up one voice and one song, and we applause our God. Hallelujah.